Welcome to the latest Tablet podcast. My name is Ruth Cladtill and I'm an assistant editor of the Tablet. Today I'm with Ruth Siegel and Dario Kenner from CAFOD. And they're here to talk about the World Bank and how its policies around aid and aid funding are harming farmers in some of the poorest parts of the world. Dr. Siegel is CAFOD's food systems lead analyst. She's worked on food and agriculture issues both in the UK and internationally for more than 25 years. She's an expert on global food systems and seed systems. Dario Kenner is the lead analyst for sustainable economic development at CAFOD. He's an expert on the World Bank and debt within the Global South. He's published many research papers on the subject and regularly gives evidence at parliamentary select committees. They're both incredibly busy, so it's really fantastic they've found time to talk to us today. So we'll start with Ruth. Um, Ruth, can you just tell me what the problem is here? Because, you know, it sounds quite difficult to get a handle on it. The World Bank, um, seeds and um, aid. I mean, surely aid is a good thing. How can it be? How can its, its use be doing harm or not? doing the good it's meant to do. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, So the World Bank uh, is a very large institution that many uh, countries around the world uh, give funds to, and its mandate is to reduce poverty. And it does that by giving loans to countries around the world that need support. What we found um, in our recent uh, research that we have done on uh, World Bank policies in relation to agriculture is that when it gives those loans, it puts conditions on the loans so that the country receiving the money has to change its policies on agriculture. And what we found is that the policies that the World Bank is asking for are having a negative impact, particularly on the poorest smallholder farmers. So the kind of conditions that the World Bank puts on its loans are about opening up markets for agricultural inputs, so seeds and fertilisers, to private sector actors and limiting the choice of seeds that farmers can use. And traditionally, in many parts of the world, farmers grow food from seeds that they've saved themselves in their own fields. And so they don't have to pay for them. But when the private sector comes into the market, they have to go and buy the seeds. And so that's an additional cost for them that many of them can't afford. And they also have to buy very specific seeds um, developed by commercial companies that are called hybrid seeds that need additional inputs like fertilizers and pesticides to be effective um, and to have a high yield. So that's an additional cost as well, as well as having environmental impacts. So overall, what we found through looking at uh, the World Bank policies is that they actually don't work to reduce poverty and they can have the opposite effect of making it much harder for smallholder farmers to make um, a sustainable living. So Dario, it it seems a no-brainer that if you want to grow food, um, grow crops on your land, you, you would harvest seeds and then plant them the next year. And I mean, everyone surely knows that that's the way to farm. Um, 
so why why is this happening then? What why um would the World Bank be doing something that seems so blatantly obviously against the interests of the poor farmers who they're meant to be trying to help? Well, yes, it is quite a paradox. Thank you for uh, having us uh, on your on your podcast to discuss this because it is quite complicated. So it's great to have a space where we can get into more of the details and nuances because on the face of it, the World Bank, uh, which is a publicly funded institution, the UK puts aid money into the World Bank each year, sits on its board as well. It's a public institution and it, it says it is addressing food insecurity and it is helping people grow food and um, that all sounds great. I mean, you know, these are urgent issues. There's a global food crisis, and the World Bank says they are at the forefront of trying to address it. So the problem is, is when you get into the kind of nuances, and uh, it's not always as straightforward as that. So the World Bank says it's supporting farmers around the world to, to grow more food. They have a big focus on increasing productivity. Um, and uh, in, in some cases, they are doing that. The problem is, and particularly for us, and this is our biggest concern, CAFOD uh, for decades has accompanied and worked with smallholder farmers, so the, the poorest farmers um, in the global south, and our report is specifically focused on, on Africa. So those are the people who we're con you know, particularly concerned about, not the bigger farmers, but the, the smallholder farmers. And the issue is the World Bank's approach doesn't always work for them. So it might work for a, for a, a bigger farmer, but it doesn't always work for a poorer, poorer farmer. So let me give you just one example. Um, these, uh, these hybrid seeds and these chemical fertilizers that Ruth mentioned, they're basically more expensive. So as you just said, a farmer could reuse the seeds uh, from their own land or maybe from their neighbors, exchange them. And that's basically free uh, or very low cost. But if you're having to pay uh, for uh, these hybrid seeds, which you have to buy from a, you know, from a shop, from you know, a local agribusiness company and the fertilizers that go with it, you basically have more costs. And so this is such a skewed situation that the World Bank ends up um, imposing conditions on loans, as Ruth mentioned, to countries saying that governments have to uh, maintain or introduce subsidies to basically make those uh, hybrid seeds and chemical inputs affordable for farmers who can't afford them. So, I mean, our question is really, you know, why aren't the World Bank starting with listening to what smallholder farmers actually want and what they can actually afford and can actually access and start, start with that and ask them what kind of seeds they want to use, what kind of fertilizers they want to use, not assume that all smallholder farmers in the global South will want to use these fancy hybrid seeds developed in a lab in the United States or in Germany and all the chemical fertilizers that go with them. And that, that's what they want to do because actually that isn't always the case. So in terms of you're asking, you know, how does this happen? We would say the World Bank, it, it has this mandate to reduce poverty, to be on the side of the poorest. It needs to listen to the poorest, start by listening and then develop your policies from there, but don't just make assumptions about what the poorest smallholder farmers want. And then if they don't want to use it, then basically say to them, well, you know, you kind of have to, or we're going to make it more affordable. Start, start with the farmers and, and listen to the farmers. Well, obviously, I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, but even I know about economies of scale. So doesn't it make sense for um, the World Bank to be adopting what seems to me to be a typical economies of scale measure to try and increase food production by, you know, employing what appear to be mass production methods? That's one question I'd have. 
Um, the other one is if the poor farmers can't afford it and the previous method of simply planting and replanting from their own planting every year has worked in the past, why can't they just carry on doing that? How come they have to be then locked into this World Bank system that is clearly aimed at the larger producers? So um, I'll answer the seed question, if that's OK. Um, so the World Bank puts in place conditions around seed regulation um, and seed certification, which means that farmers can only buy seeds that have been certified. And this is actually, um, you, you asked previously about why can't farmers just keep saving their own seeds. The extraordinary thing is that around the world, across many countries, including in the UK, we're not allowed to just save our own seeds. We're not allowed to just plant stuff that we've grown year on year. Um, and you, this is why there's been such a decrease in kind of heritage varieties and kind of, you know, the vast range of um, apple varieties that, that used to grow in the UK. You're, you're not allowed to just plant whatever seeds you want. You can only plant seeds that are on the list of registered uh, certified varieties. Can I just so, stop you there for one second? Yep. Um, this is a slightly off-field question, so please forgive me and please don't forget the track of where we were because I want you to go back to that. But does that does Brexit change that? Have we found something good about Brexit? <laughs> Not yet, no, um, unfortunately. Um, so, so that regulation still applies even though we're no longer in the EU. So it's not an in, EU um, in fact, bit of red tape. the opposite is the case. So the EU had a derogation for a few uh, particular wheat varieties that people were planting. Um, and since Brexit, that derogation has fallen by the wayside. So we no longer have that in the UK. So we actually have even less ability to plant seeds that are not on the certific certification list than we did when we were in the EU, unfortunately. And it is really unfortunate because there are other countries such as Switzerland that have taken a different approach and have taken an approach that we would encourage the World Bank to take in countries in the global south. So uh, what Switzerland has done is have one list of seeds that commercial companies use and then a sort of right for farmers to use their own seeds in a smaller scale. And so it's about local varieties that are used only in a local area or perhaps organic seeds that um, have a different market structure. So that there's a separate set of regulations and controls over seeds that are more diverse and more sustainable and are locally uh, appropriate. Right. So to, would... to get... Sorry. Sorry. No. To, get, to get this clear then, so in, in, in the UK, if I was I had a little allotment and was growing for my own dinner table or my own lunch table, I could grow, you know, curly carrots and straight bananas if I wished. But... Um, if um, I was growing them to sell them at my local Sunday village market, um, I couldn't do that because that would be for commercial use. Is, is that right? It is. But also in the UK, you'd really struggle to get hold of your curly carrot seeds and your straight banana seeds because um, there's a, there are some particular uh, companies that, that work so that there's the Heritage Seed Library, but you have to join and become a member. You're not allowed to get hold of them commercially and there are other companies that operate in the same membership way because you're not allowed to sell those seeds commercially 
So you would struggle to get hold of them for your allotment, for your own consumption. And the reason this really matters is because we are facing a climate crisis and diversity in our food system is increasingly vital to ensure that we can carry on feeding ourselves. So, you know, your question, to go back to your question before about um, economies of scale, the problem with economies of scale is that they are not context specific. And so the seeds that the big commercial companies produce don't actually meet the needs of smallholder farmers who are maybe working on more marginal land, who probably can't afford irrigation, who you know will have different soil conditions from the ones that have been uh, that the seeds have been tested for. So the seeds don't actually meet their needs. And as we you know, reach this climate and biodiversity crisis, it's really, really important that farmers can grow their own seeds in their own context locally and save them and share them. And I think the thing that uh, gets forgotten is that farmers throughout the centuries have been doing research on their own plots and developing seeds themselves. So a lot of these commercial seeds build on, you know, centuries of farmer innovation so, you know, we need to take that into account and realise that if farmers were given the freedom to innovate, they would be able to develop climate resilient crops for themselves that work in their own context. Also, it's really tragic to think that I bet a lot of these innovations haven't been written down and are just being passed on from generation to generation by the farmers to their children and grandchildren. So if it all stops suddenly, um, by some in, you know, injunction from above, it'll, it could just disappear. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, organisations that CAFOD works with uh, in uh, Bolivia is uh, the women are um, the members of the community who have responsibility for saving seeds. And so the community that we work with, um, the women have been saving and collecting and uh, rebuilding the traditional indigenous knowledge around seed systems and preserving it and conserving it so it's also sort of part of um traditional indigenous knowledge and knowledge of the local environment and local and knowledge of sort of local food cultures as well they're all interlinked with each other so you know if we lose these seeds we lose a great deal so i can i can see i mean i imagine that um the motives of the World Bank are good and they do they do genuinely want to relieve poverty and there's lots of good people there trying their best mm -hmm. to yeah. counter you know these kind of unfathomably difficult um, problems po around poverty and hunger in in, in um, you know in so many places all over the world so given that their motives are good so therefore they are um, presumably open to suggestions of ideas of how to improve. How can this situation be addressed in a constructive way that might lead to a better um, outcome than what we're seeing at the moment? Maybe I'll take that one, Ruth, if that's all yeah, right. Yeah, sure. So I think what we're, what we're trying to do with the report that we just published and our campaigning is in a way where we're trying to say to the World Bank staff and also the UK government and other shelter governments, look, you've tried this basically one approach and you've tried it for several decades and it has increased productivity in, in many countries that there, you know, there, there, are, there are kind of um, outcomes that have worked, 
but also the, 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 the really the point we're trying to point out is about that reduced resilience, reduced diversity, which Ruth has just explained uh, so eloquently why it's so crucial, you know, in, a, in an age of, of climate change and global shocks to the food system, that resilience is more important than ever. And in fact, it's something the World Bank and the UK government will often say, you know, the, the food system needs to be more resilient. So what we're trying to say is the approach that you've taken for so long it's not that it's completely failed, but it has severe limitations. And, you know, depending on chemical fertilizers that basically use natural gas to be produced, you know, that, that just isn't going to work in an age of climate change. We have to try different things, have to try a mix of approaches. So we're, in a way, we're trying to remind them that there are these other approaches, uh, there are other ways to do things. And that's why, you know, saying listen, listen to the farmers, listen to the, to the ways that they are, they are doing things, because we need... Um, you know, a, a diverse approach so that there's there's more resilience, you know, don't put all your eggs in one, in one basket, literally. And and in some ways, what something that I found really interesting when I was doing the research for this report is I was going through uh, World Bank documents from a long time ago um, and just finding things like in uh, a 1992 discussion paper, um, bank staff acknowledged that, um, yeah, that, that, that farmers actually quite like uh, using the seeds that they that they know and that they trust and that are reliable, um, predictable, and that they're, well, they put here zero transaction costs. So in, in a way, we're, we're kind of saying, well, why don't you, in a way, listen to your own advice, uh, which, you know, hasn't always been taken on board, which you've, which you've had for, you know, for a long time, um, and, and actually kind of reset your approach. You know, we're not, we're not in a situation of post-Second World War where, um, there was, uh, you know, a huge need to increase productivity at that time to, to, to feed a global population. Uh, we, you know, we're in a slightly different situation now. Actually, there's enough food produced for everyone, but it isn't getting to them. It, it's not. It's, so the, the issue isn't so much the productivity, but the World Bank is still kind of in that in that zone of we just have to increase food production kind of up at all costs. And we're saying, well, actually, you know, there are problems with that approach now, and and it's, so yeah, it's time to time to try something different. That's why we're, we're calling for the World Bank to support more agroecology approaches, which is what, you know, uh, your, your, your listeners will be familiar with, you know, organic farming and permaculture and all of those kind of ideas. And it's, yeah, you know, we, we need to try multiple approaches that will increase our resilience um, because the, the food system is going to have more and more shocks. We can't just uh, complain about those shocks because actually they're very predictable, whether it's from climate change or it can be from conflict or even from you know, things like a pandemic, we need a more resilient food system. And that's what we're saying to the World Bank and UK government. There are ways to make the food system more resilient. Please do that because you cannot just blindly follow the path you've, that you followed for the past 40 years or so. so. So your report was published a few days ago now. So have you had any response at all to it that, that encourages you that change might be um, on, on the horizon? Do you want to answer that one, Ruth? No, I'll leave it to you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we've shared it with, with civil society colleagues, so that's other NGOs or social movements who've been working on, on these issues for a long time. They're very happy to see the report, which, you know, we're not completely surprised about. I think something that is interesting now is that, as I was saying, that age of climate change, and there's a much higher awareness about the environmental impacts of, of the food system, whether that's from industrial you know livestock or it's um even from the from the chemical fertilizers and, and pesticides you know we're, we're now in a 
an age where there's a lot more scientific evidence about you know pollution of water soils the air uh, from using for example um chemical fertilizers and pesticides but even in their production you know contributing to climate change so i think what what's kind of interesting is that there's actually a much stronger case now in some ways to really have a diverse um, approaches whereas you know as i was mentioning before you know post second world war it was all really about increased productivity right now because that's what needs to happen so i think we're in a a slightly different age there's a lot more environmental awareness um obviously we're in a more uh, interconnected economy and, and world and you know people know about things happening on the other side of the planet in the uk you know we're, we're we're a lot more aware of where food comes from how it's produced who is producing it and so i think that actually uh we have a much stronger case to say the world bank really needs to put smallholder farmers first uh, needs to uh, invest in, in agriculture in a way that also reduces poverty, which is part of its mandate. And, and that will be good for, for people and planet. And actually populations around the world, more and more people, that's that's what they want. They don't just want the food. They want to know that, you know, human rights are respected and the, and the planet was respected in, in how that food was, was produced and transported. And what are the chances of this happening? I mean, it seems a little bit like turning around to Titanic. <laughs> yes, well, it is, it is, it is a big ship. Uh, the World Bank. But I mean, CAFOD campaigned for many years uh, alongside lots of civil society um, to, to get the, the World Bank to reduce its investments in um, oil, coal and gas, which it has done bit by bit. They still I invest. Know. You know, that is happening now. That is happening. And you're right, you know, for years, I mean, I was watching this campaigning going on and thinking, no, it'll never happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> cynical journalist in me. And um there you go. It's happening everywhere now. But in fact, people don't seem to be able to do it fast enough. Well, I mean, the World Bank, through many loopholes, is still investing in fossil fuels. So it's not it's not a kind of permanent victory at this point. But I, I was think I was saying more in terms of publicly what they had to say. I mean, they, they have actually reduced the investments in, in fossil fuels. But I mean, also in that public position. So the World Bank now says they really care about climate change. They're aligning all of their investments, including in agriculture, with the Paris Agreement signed in 2015. And um, so... There's quite a lot of way to go on that, I have to say. Yes, of course. In terms of what their alignment is and what it looks like. Um, Yes, of course. But, 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 you know, the the change is happening, isn't it? So it's really interesting that you you point out that that, that, that there is progress there. And so it's not unreasonable to hope for progress here as well. I yeah. think it's a very strong case you're making, and um, the report is certainly <laughs> certainly chilling reading, really. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the point, that we, we are in a position where the, there is no choice but to transform the way we produce our food. You know, we have to understand that we produce food. We need a healthy environment in order to produce food. If we don't have it, we will not be able to feed ourselves. So kind of going along the same line that's destroying... Um, you know, soils and biodiversity and pollinators and and the diversity of crops that can be climate resilient is even if there is a short term win in terms of productivity. And, you know, we, we argued in the report that that doesn't necessarily then um, match onto any kind of gain in poverty reduction. But, you know, even if there is a short term gain in productivity in the long term, we have to turn this ship around. We have to do things differently. 
So what's the next step then? You've, you've done this report. You're obviously incredibly well informed about all the data and the science behind what we see in front of our eyes. Where, where do you go from here? In terms of cathodes campaigning, uh, yeah. we have, um, so we work with an organisation in Bangladesh uh, and they work with women farmers primarily uh, to develop agroecological, environmentally friendly agricultural production systems and to uh, save and share local seeds. And they have spoken very eloquently about their experience of um, the impact of these technologies of uh, fertilizer and pesticide in uh, stripping out soil quality and um, making it very difficult to grow food. Um, they have written a letter to the World Bank and we're asking cathode supporters and everybody, in fact, to sign up to that letter, to sign on um, to the call to the World Bank to change the kind of agricultural system that it funds. Um, and so we'll be uh, taking that out and about to supporters. And we'll also, when we've gathered the signatures, we'll be taking it to the World Bank in their annual meetings at the end of the year. Well, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again about this. And we'll keep a close eye on this as it develops. And we'd, we'd love to hear from you with any progress reports that you can give us. And thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you. Sure, thank you so much.